Good morning. Good morning. It's great to be here. So this morning, I'm going to talk about uh, colon. I'm going to talk about uh, case 16 from the Book of Equanimity, also sometimes known as the Book of Serenity. And I'm using uh, the uh, version of uh, Jerry Shishin Wick. And uh, koans bring us into new territory. So let's see if we can just kind of relax our usual defenses and habitual ways of thinking and just uh, see where this, uh, this ride takes us. So I'll read the koan. It's on your program. If you're here in the Zendo and you have a program, you can follow along. It's called Mayoku Thumps His Staff. Attention, Mayoku arrived at Shokei's place holding his staff. He walked three times around the meditation seat of Shokei and thumped his staff once. Shokei said, right, right. Mayoku afterward went to Nansen's walked three times around the meditation seat of Nansen and thumped his staff once. Nansen remarked, wrong, wrong. Mayoku said, Shokei said, right. Why do you say wrong? Nansen said, for Shokei, it is right. For you, it is wrong. What comes from the power of wind in the end becomes broken and crumbled. So. I'll just read that one more time. Attention. Mayoku arrived at Shokei's place holding his staff. He walked three times around the meditation seat of Shokei and thumped his staff once. Shokei said, right, right. Mayoku afterward went to Nansen's, walked three times around the meditation seat of Nansen and thumped his staff once. Nansen remarked, wrong, wrong. Mayoku said, Shokei said, right, why do you say wrong? Nan said, said, for Shokei it is right, for you it is wrong. What comes from the power of wind in the end becomes broken and crumbled. So it begins, attention, they all begin that way. Mayoku arrived at Shokei's place, holding his staff. So uh, Meoku, that's the, um, the Japanese version of a Chinese name. This took place in China. The Chinese name is Maku. Arrived at Shokei's place. The Chinese version of Shokei is Zhangjing. And Nansen is Nanhuan, or Nanshuan is the correct pronunciation, I believe. Um, but I'll be using the Japanese versions of these names. So Mayoku arrived at Shokei's place holding his staff. Mayoku is a student, uh, he's not a teacher, and he's visiting other teachers. He's on a kind of a pilgrimage uh, to visit other teachers. And he's um, holding his staff. So probably his walking stick, he's just arrived. He's walked there, he's holding his walking stick. Uh, it's not um, really a... Um, a mark of authority, 
the way sometimes a Zen teacher will hold a staff. I think it's just a walking stick. Um, but he, uh, he walks in and uh, kind of audacious maybe to walk into your first interview with a new teacher and you're holding your walking stick. And not only does he hold the walking stick, but he walks around the meditation seat three times and thumps his staff once. So, um, and uh, Wick in his commentary says, can you imagine going to another Zen center and instead of greeting the teacher, you just walk around her three times and bang the ground and then walk out. Uh, yeah, that's kind of hard to imagine. I mean, it could happen, but generally new students, when they see you for the first time, don't do that kind of thing in Yokosuka. And you only get to make a first impression once. And that's, that's maybe a little, a little risky. Uh, usually you kind of take the cue from the teacher in Dokusan. Um, and if you think that the teacher really wants to be challenged in that first encounter, you've probably been reading too many old Zen stories. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not really into challenging and testing and proving and drama. Uh, I'm more likely to meet you in kind and supportive dialogue. And that doesn't necessarily happen right away. Sometimes you meet with a person for really quite a long time. And what you do is you kind of develop your own mutual language about the Dharma that allows you to talk about these extremely subtle things. And um, that's kind of the way it tends to go with me. But here we have this dramatic presentation. And, uh, but nonetheless, Shokei said, right, right. Um, he apparently approved of uh, what he said, uh, what he did. And maybe that's because of some subtlety about how he did it. Maybe he did it with a real freshness. Uh, maybe he did it in a way that was really in the moment. Maybe he spontaneously decided when he walked into the interview room, I'm going to do this because that's what's come to me right now. And the teacher could see that and he thought, yeah, this is great, this is great. Uh, and we'll talk a little more about that later. But then afterwards, he goes to a different teacher, Nansen. He does exactly the same thing. And Nansen remarks, wrong, wrong. Well, the poor guy, the poor student. He did what he thought was exactly the right thing. And now he's been told it's exactly wrong. And he asks about that. Why do you say wrong? For Shoke, it is right. For you, it is wrong. Uh, in another translation uh, by Thomas Cleary, he says, uh, for uh, basically, Shoke is right, you are wrong. And I don't want to parse those exact words too closely, but I think basically it means you were right then to say that, and now you're wrong to say exactly the same thing. And this is the heart of it, I think. Uh, it shows us the heart of uh, Miyoku's uh, delusion, and it points to the heart of Zen practice. Uh, Zen is not really like regular life, the way we learn things and then rely on those things uh, in the future. In regular life, you learn something, you get it right, you know it's going to be right from now on, and you're all set. Uh, in Zen, you can't get it right the same way twice. Uh, the good news 
is that this also means you can't get it wrong. And uh, Mayoku thought he could give a right answer, which was fine, and he did. Uh, but his mistake was thinking that it would continue to be the right answer when conditions had changed. So why did Nansen say it was wrong when Shokei had said it was right? Uh, it could have been that Shokei liked audacious displays and Nansen did, didn't. Uh, or maybe, as I said before, maybe there was some variation in Mayoku's presentation. Uh, it could have been a change in the body language or his tone of voice or his confidence or just the freshness he brought to it. Um, and I think that's most likely. I think probably Mayoku was really in the moment when he did it the first time. Either he decided spontaneously on the spot to do it, or if he'd thought about it ahead of time, he just did it with this, this real uh, freshness. So the first time uh, it was a great success and he probably thought to himself, well, then I'll just do the same thing for the next uh, teacher. And he walked in to see Nansen and he did it. And maybe he was on autopilot, you know, he wasn't really there. It's just all I have to do is repeat this performance. And so uh, Shokei the first time saw freshness and sincerity and in the momentness. And Mayoku performed a direct action that eliminated all discrimination, all ideas, all sort of formality, the usual teacher-student uh, relationship. He just cut through everything. He presented himself and he met the moment. But can you really be uh, in the same moment with freshness twice? I don't think so. When Nansen saw it, something was off. He wasn't uh, present. You can't put your whole heart into something. You can't have a clear mind about something if you're trying to repeat something that you've done before. And then Nansen continues, what comes from the power of wind in the end becomes broken and crumbled. Uh, maybe this means something is blown at you with great power. It has complete thereness and it's undeniable. Here it is, blown to you with a great wind. Uh, when I read this, I thought of this weird little incident that happened to me a few winters ago. I was uh, shopping at a grocery store in Egan, and this was in the dead of winter, and it was a really windy day. I mean, blizzard, you know, maybe 30 to 40 mile per hour winds. And I remember there was no one in uh, the parking lot, and I was going to my truck with my groceries, and this scarf came blowing across the parking lot, and it blew right to me, and I just caught it. And it was this really nice scarf. It was green and it had these kind of subtle purple highlights. And I look at this and I go, wow, a present from the universe. And there was no moral dilemma here at all because there was no one else in the parking lot. I couldn't possibly figure out who it belonged to, who had lost it. So I had to keep it, right? <laughs> so 
Something blown to me by the power of the wind. There it is, this scarf. You know, it wakes you up. Wow, that's a weird thing. And um, it was presenting itself in all of its uh, scarfness, uh, <laughs> sort of challenging my beliefs about how you get things and moral dilemmas and things like that. What comes from the power of the wind in the end becomes broken and crumbled. So there's the thusness of the scarf, the presence of the scarf. That can't be repeated. You know, you can't hang on to that. The magic of that moment, little magic, little bitty magic, will never be repeated again. And I shouldn't try to make it happen again. Uh, or even think about it happening again. And probably the worst thing I could do would be if I brought in the scarf, because I still have it, and show it to you. Because, I mean, can you see what a big mistake that would be? Uh, talking about it is bad enough. <laughs> <laughs> now, if I brought it in and I cut it up in little pieces, that might be pretty good. <laughs> um, one time, uh, I was sitting with my my dear friend, uh, Guy, my late friend, Guy, down at Hokyoji, the rural retreat center. And we were sitting in the middle of the day uh, on the east side of the old shower and bathhouse, which is gone now. And um, it was a perfectly still day. We were sitting there beside each other silently because we were on retreat. And we heard this strange noise, this strange loud noise gathering in intensity, which turned into a great crash. And we realized what it was. It was a tree falling in the woods. This really happened. It was a big tree falling in the woods. And it was so strange because, you know, there's that koan if a tree falls in the forest. But just to have a big tree fall on a uh, still day like that was really kind of um, strange. And as I remember it, um, we didn't comment on it at all. We may have looked at each other a little bit and maybe chuckled a little bit, but we just let it go. We didn't talk about it. We let that be. Um, a little bit like the Blues Brothers. You know when the Blues Brothers were uh, had that car chase in the shopping mall? Mm -hmm when they're driving their car through the shopping mall at high speeds and everybody was jumping out of the way, which is really horrifying, but it's just a joke, you know. Um, <laughs> after doing this, it was like a 10, 15 minute scene of this incredible car chase. You know, they would never look at each other or comic because they were too cool for that. But after chasing, uh, being in the car chase in the shopping mall, they just kind of slightly look at each other just a little bit like that and then they're back, they're back on the road and they keep driving. They keep driving. That's Zen. Zen has no rear view mirror. You keep going. So, and obviously I, you know, betrayed the moment a little bit by talking about it, the tree falling, but it's all for the Dharma. So it's okay. What comes from the power of the wind in the end becomes broken and crumbled. Nothing ever really lasts. You need to be fresh all the time. No rules can be made. Nothing can be repeated. Everything changes and you have to let it change. You rise to the current moment again and again. So 
Uh, Kathy, my wife Kathy and I, we've had a pretty good winter with cross-country skiing. It's been kind of a cold winter, um, and uh, it's been great for skiing. Uh, we haven't been going to restaurants. I think that may be about to change, but, you know, we need stuff to do. So we go skiing. We've probably gone about 10 times this winter. Uh, I have to say I'm extremely grateful that we're able to do this at our age, that we've got the good health uh, to do this. And it's really a joy. It's great to get the exercise. It's great to be outdoors. You know, I've really been sort of uh, advocating for that a lot this winter. It's been kind of a tough winter. Getting outside can help a lot. Um, yeah. So we go to the same place every single time. And I don't think you need a lot of variety in life in order to learn about how things change all the time and how there's infinite variety in things. In fact, if you do what seems like the same thing over and over and over, that may really teach you how things change because you see that what appears to be the same really isn't. There's infinite variety there. And the familiar is really not familiar if you're if you're really looking at it. And we go to Bedote, uh, that's spelled B-D-O-T-E. Some of you know this place. That's a Dakota word meaning where two waters come together. And it's the point where the Mississippi and Minnesota rivers come together on a place now called Pike Island. And some of you are nodding your heads. It's a very, very special place. And uh, Many Dakota people consider this a sacred place of creation. It's now part of Fort Snelling State Park. And we approach this place with a lot of respect. Uh, the same respect we always have in nature. When we go out in nature, we tend to kind of hush our voices, which makes sense. You don't want to scare the, the animals. Um, I've always thought it's strange when people would go out to the woods and just kind of yell out there a lot. But, you know, people are different. Uh, but we hush our, our voices, and we also know that uh, we're on uh, stolen land, and that there's a very, it's a vortex of painful history down there. Really a remarkable place. It's a sacred Dakota place. There's a fort built in the middle of it, an imperialist fort. Uh, there was a concentration camp set up there during the Dakota War of 1862. That's the language the Fort Snelling website uses, concentration camp. It's not provocative language, it's accurate language. Um, more than 1600 Dakota people were confined there in a stockade and between 130 and 300 of them died, the website says. Uh, Dred Scott lived at Fort Snelling. He was a slave who was brought north to Minnesota and he sued to get his freedom because he was in the North and the Supreme Court ruled against him. In World War II, there was a training center at Fort Snelling for Japanese Americans who had left the internment camps and joined the army. Some of them stayed around after the war and that was the genesis of the Twin Cities Buddhist Association, our friends practicing pure land Buddhism. And by the way, we're going to have another joint service with them this spring, which I'm looking forward to. So all of this history and these bottomlands down there, forested bottomlands, they're just wild. 
There are miles and miles of forest along these rivers, right in the middle of the cities. And the Mendota Bridge towers above the whole thing. And it's right next to the airport. So it's this beautiful, beautiful natural place. And you can hear the screams. And it's a place of reverence and awe. And it's a place where we learn about ourselves if we just pay attention. You know, we can examine our reactions to things. There's that memorial down there to uh, um, uh, commemorate the camp that was set up during the Dakota War. And you know, what's our reaction to that? And do we notice it this time? Uh, things just change all the time. We see different deer. For a while, we were seeing the same four or five deer every time we went to Pike Island. Then one day we saw this new herd of nine deer, which was pretty exciting. The weather, you know, we feel different. Everything feels different according to the weather, the temperature, how much wind there is, the time of day makes a big difference. The tracks that your skis are in, sometimes they're really smooth, sometimes they're a little sticky, sometimes a lot of sticks have fallen into them, sometimes they're fresh. We see different people. Kathy and I are in a different place relative to each other every time. Um, our energy varies. We never know how it's going to be. We might think, I feel great today, and we get down there, and we feel a little tired, or I'm really tired, and we get down there, and we get really energized. Um, so the really interesting thing is that it changes all the time, but it's not really it changing. It's us changing. We may think that things have changed. The external world has changed, that there's this objective world out there that's different and that's making us different. But really it's about changes in us because we're making the whole thing up, you could say. The whole thing exists in our minds. We are so susceptible to our own point of view, our own perspective, our desires, our mistakes, fogginess some days, alertness other days, that there's no way that we can really know what is really there. And the Buddha said, all we are is the result of what we have thought. So we've been down there enough times, we've been going there for years actually, that we recognize individual trees and we talk about them and they bring us joys, joy. I've been thinking about trees a lot lately. There are the trees that have been chewed on by beavers, some fallen over, some are leaning, some are still standing. There are the basswoods with their multiple trunks. There's a maple that has this kind of swirl to it I particularly like. And I've singled out one tree for attention that I look at every time. And it's a, one of those big old cottonwood trees. And it's just a few feet from the Mississippi River. Uh, it's in the middle of the north side of the island, uh, in case you wanna check it out. And it's just the most busted up tree. It's huge and it divides into several major trunks, maybe 40 or 50 feet up. And almost every one of those trunks is busted off. And yet it's a thriving tree. And I like it because it inspires me. It's old and it's damaged and it's beautiful. It's like my old grandpa Bob with his hands 
all busted up from those years of farming. Uh, the more damaged something is, the more endearing and beautiful I think it is. So I've woven a story around this tree and it's a good story and it inspires me. But I also need to remember that the story I've made up is not the tree. You know, my story, although it's a good story, the more I enhance it, the further and further I'm getting from the actual tree, from what the tree really is. I can love the story, but I also need to know that I'm a little like Mayoku here. I'm relying on last time. My view is limited. And the same is true about my ideas of the history down there, this very complex history. I've developed some pretty, some pretty strong ideas about it. There's quite a narrative. I could do a separate talk about all of that. And it's a good narrative and I'm glad I'm thinking about it and it's an important narrative, but I don't want it to harden. You know, I don't want to get this one idea of how things are and never be able to vary from that or see things fresh. Because it's always so much better to be open. Yes, you make your story, but you know it's just a story and you look beyond the story too. And meditation is like this. Meditation is like our skiing trips. You never know what's going to happen. You might feel energetic one day, hey, I'm gonna have a great meditation. And then you find it's just all over the place or vice versa. Um, and very often you'll be surprised. And of course, Meditation can't be what you've expected. It can only be what it is. And you can be like Mayoku and bring yesterday's ideas about meditation into today. Uh, you can remember a spontaneous, wholehearted act from yesterday, and you can turn it into kind of a lukewarm performance today. You can phone it in. It can be a hack. Or you can drop all your ideas of what it should be. And of course, that means you have to take a risk, right? Because if you're trying to do it the same way, you're trying to keep it from going wrong. But if you drop all your ideas of what it should be, you're taking the risk that it could go horribly wrong. But you know what? It's almost guaranteed to go horribly wrong if you hang on to those old ideas. So take the plunge, take the plunge. And if you let it be wrong, It'll be right. Not the right you expected, but something that's true and authentic and lets you move on to the next thing. So, what should Mayoku have done when he saw Nansen? Well, it would have been risky and it would have been uncomfortable, but he could have gone in there with no ideas and just done whatever came into his head, some spontaneous true act. And maybe this time that would have been just humbly taking his seat, or maybe it would have been thumping his staff, but doing it for real this time. Uh, or maybe he would have just stood there not knowing what to do, feeling kind of ridiculous. 
And probably Nansen would have approved the authenticity of that. So koans bring us into territory where everything we've ever made a story about or made a rule about is challenged. Koans tell us to always be open, to always let it disintegrate. What comes from the power of wind in the end becomes broken and crumbled. Let it break, let it crumble. And this is not bad news because it's beautiful when it breaks. It's beautiful when it crumbles and another wind will come along. And the tree will be beautiful in its brokenness and new trees will be nurtured by its fallen limbs and new creatures. The only thing that bothers us about things crumbling is that we don't wanna take that ride. We're afraid to take that ride. We want yesterday's ride. And I think we need to hear this again and again because we need to abandon our stories completely. But in addition to knowing how to abandon our stories completely, we need to know how to have our stories. We need a new relationship with our stories. So my stories about the broken tree may obscure the actual tree, and I should take that into account, and yet I can be inspired by the tree I can hope to be like that tree, and I can do both of those things at once. And one way to explain all of this, I think, is that uh, when you're on your cushion, you can be completely free. You don't need to bring in yesterday or tomorrow. You don't need to plan or fix. And mighty winds come, and everything crumbles and you're along for the ride. But when you're off the cushion, you need to choose the stories that can help. Some of these stories are really vital. We really need them. You need to make choices and plan and fix. And the ideal, I think, is a remarkable combination of freedom and discipline when you're off the cushion. And you can think about the Buddha in some representations you've seen. He has perfect uh, posture, indicating an approach to the world, I think, a kind of discipline that he has, a way he's meeting the world. And yet he also has this little smile, indicating a simultaneous approach to the world, which is complete freedom. And I think we can see the same thing in Maha Pajapati, right behind me here. And I think the beauty of this representation is that this disciplined approach to the world is informed by this complete freedom. And the complete freedom is informed by this disciplined approach to the world. So one final thing, um, there are lots of ways of looking at this koan and I'm just telling you one. And I've taken, uh, I've chosen this approach where I'm kind of saying there's a right way to do this and a wrong way to do this. Don't drag yesterday into today. And I'm talking about how off the cushion that is somewhat different. 
But I could have taken another tack. I could have talked about how maybe both teachers were just kind of playing with Mayoku a little bit, that they both knew that there really was no right or wrong to his presentations. And they were just trying to bring him beyond his ideas of right and wrong. And uh, Thomas Cleary, in his commentary, in a different book, takes this approach. He says that when Showcase says, right, right, he means, for the moment, I believe half of it. And that when Nansen says, wrong, wrong, he means, I believe half of this for the moment, too. So it's play. It's all just play, you know? And yet it's dead serious. It's dead serious, because here we are. We have things to do here. So how can that be? What will your presentation be given all of this? So I'd like to uh, leave you with a, a reading of the preface to the koan, which is about a paragraph long. So don't think about the meaning too much, just hear it. Pointing to a deer, it becomes a horse. Rubbing the soil, it becomes gold. On the tongue, wind and thunder are raised. Between the eyebrows, a bloody blade is stored. While sitting, success or failure is perceived. While standing, life and death are examined. Tell me, what kind of samadhi is this? And there's a lot there, and I'm not going to parse it. I'll just say that I think this is kind of about the interplay between those on-cushion and off-cushion approaches, uh, even kind of directly. While sitting, success or failure is perceived. If sitting is about freedom from thought and judgment, still success or failure is perceived while sitting. Thought and judgment do come into sitting. While standing, life and death are examined. Standing is about acting in the world, and it requires thought and judgment. And yet we do that coming from a place where we examine life and death. Complete freedom comes into our standing life. How can this be? What kind of samadhi is this? Are there no distinctions whatsoever? And I'll leave you uh, with that question. Thank you. And I would love to hear some, some comments or maybe entertain some questions. If anyone would like to speak from folks at home or folks here in the Zendo. If, uh, yes, Joe. Thank you for your talk. You're uh, welcome. <laughs> much of what you talked about reminds me of the sense of uh, inertia that we, we seem to have in our day-to-day -day life, that we have these routines that we develop. And, and there's a lot of value to, do, to having those routines. But if we do those blindly, day in and day out, or whatever that routine may be, like we're, we're not appreciating the, the subtleties and why we're doing it. So it reminds me of of the value of examining and being perceptive of, of what we're what we're actually doing. 
Right. Thank you, Joe. Being perceptive of our, our routines and examining them. So instead of just doing them out of, out of habit to really see the new life in them all the time. Yeah. And that's a great practice. That's a practice we can do any day, any time. Brushing our teeth. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> do it like you've never done it before. <laughs> do it with your other hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, Benton. You know what I want to do, of course. I want to go up and walk around and sing three times. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Something a little fresher might be welcome. <laughs> yes. Uh, I had a thought while you're saying that. Um, one is, you know, you kind of mentioned that we all make things up our reality in our brain, mm -hmm. depending on how we perceive it, right? But then there's this other thought that. You know, our thoughts are just not real and that we make those up. Mm -hmm. So there's a balance there, you know, and I think that it seems to me that that's where some of the play can happen. Is sort of in that moment of that two, mm -hmm. the two ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that our, th our thoughts really aren't, aren't real. Yeah, they have no solidity and yet, yet you're using them to make everything up. Yeah, 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 I like that. That's, that's uh, Another question, you know, another quandary. What is this? Yeah. Uh, anyone on, on Zoom, if you'd like to comment, just please unmute yourself. Or anyone else in the room like to speak? Jim. Thank you for your talk. I always enjoy your talks about thoughts. I want to say I think one possible interpretation, uh, maybe goes behavior strikes me as very cocky. And I think when he repeats it, with Natsen, I think Natsen to a certain extent is cutting him down in size when he says wrong, wrong, how he Bodhidharma does to the emperor. Mm -hmm. So that's what struck me as one possible way of looking at Natsen's response. Right, right. Thank you. Yes, Carrie. Um, thank you for um, sharing your love for a place that I love so much, Fidote uh, mm. Island. And um, I too have favorite tree. <laughs> really? Yeah, it's the, it's as you, and I don't, I'm directionally challenged. So when you say north, I'm not quite sure, but as you come onto the island, I usually go to the left and come around, mm -hmm. you know, clockwise, right? Yeah, that's what we do. Yeah. So my tree is the one as you almost end on, you know, on the far side as you come around, it's a big giant cottonwood that sits there kind of next to where all the beavers have you know, mm -hmm. um, made their, uh, you know, cuts into those little, littler trees. But it, it reminds me that, you know, this quote that you were talking about, the power of the wind in the end becomes broken and crumbled. Um, you know, so many times I've gone and walked on that island with a um, kind of an objective, you know, in mind sometimes, or what I wanted to get out of it, or if I was walking with someone because we were discussing an important topic, or we were, you know, so there was, there was this, this power, or I wanted to find calm in my walk, or, and, and sometimes that wasn't the way, you know, that, yeah. that wasn't what came out of the walk, it wasn't what came out of the conversation with the friend or loved one, or, um, but yet, in that that broken and crumbled right there were there were magical pieces there was 
there was a brightness, there was a, a, a an experience that I needed to have. Uh, just like the tree, you know, that, that has weathered and seen so much. I think about how those what those trees had seen and if they could talk. Yeah. Um, you know, there is it's magic in that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm not. Uh, yeah, are are you saying this that uh, we may go there with an objective? We have an idea of what to see, and in the crumbling of that objective, something beautiful could arise. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because from what you said, what I've said, you know, we might want to go down there and say, "Oh, I want this. I want to go to this magical place." You know, I want to see. You know, I want something to happen there. So I do encourage you to go there because it's a beautiful place, but. Try to go there without an objective, right? Try to just go there, quiet your mind, and ask, what does this place have to tell me? And it might be something beautiful, and it might not. It might take you a few times. You maybe you have to develop that common language, kind of like I was talking about in, in Dokusan. Get to know the place. Yeah, like going down there and hoping to see the herd of nine deer, you know, right? right. <laughs> Which I really enjoy seeing, but you may not see on that time. And That's then, right. You know, and then in comes a little disappointment that you didn't see that. You can just watch that disappointment, but there's something else that you needed to gain on that walk or trip. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I'm Pat. I'm, I'm, oh, yeah, I'm Pat. Yeah. Um, Thank you very much. I was especially interested in the interplay that you outlined with respect to discipline and freedom. And it seemed like the potential interpretation of that is that discipline creates focus, which in turn creates intentionality with action on a particular day, um, which in turn creates the ability to have more freedom because we're ordered in our approach to it. And I think it also gives us the freedom to embrace whimsy when we find that nourishing. And it just led me down this path of thinking of the human temptation toward rigidity in our frameworks because they feel durable in that way, what a natural ability that we can get comfortable with a supple framework that, that tends to serve us well. Mm -hmm. That is very nicely said. And I, I won't try to add anything to it. Thank you. Okay. Maybe one more person. Anyone else? That. Yeah, thank you, Ted, for your time. That's a really rich call. I, I like what you said at the end about wrong not necessarily being bad. Um, you know, the importance of being wrong around your teacher can be actually very fruitful and you can learn a lot you know if you would have done it perfectly you would have never learned that you know reality changes and you can't replicate it really quickly i, I thought about the first retreat i did at my previous center you had this macaroni and cheese at the end that was so good and i remember that moment and then when i cooked four years later for that center i tried to replicate it <laughs> and it wasn't that good <laughs> but even though i made it exactly the same it's pretty but if I would have never tried to replicate it, I wouldn't have learned that you can't replicate it. You know, so sometimes you gotta make that mistake. Yeah. To yeah. really like learn from it. Yeah. That's not even really a mistake. Yeah. It can't still be. Okay. I mean, if you don't hang on to it, you know, yeah. it's okay. Yeah. It's okay. Don't do that. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. Thank you for your.
comments and for listening. And I will turn this over to Carrie, our esteemed go-on.